Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. We're in for a wonderful section of Scripture. On Wednesday nights, we're going through the Bible, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. So tonight, we're going to be in Acts chapter 9. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you are alive, that you conquered the grave, and with that, that you bring salvation into our lives, that you pursue people that we may think are beyond the love of God, and yet we know that no one is beyond your love, that you pursue sinners. We thank you that you've done that in our lives, Lord. We pray for any tonight that may not know you, that you would be pursuing them even now. God, may you put deep into our hearts your grace and how you personally invest in us. So Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. Paul, think about Paul in the New Testament. He's written one-third of the New Testament. As you read through the Bible, you come to the epistles and you'll find that Paul writes a majority of those epistles. We're studying one of those on the weekend, 2 Timothy, which is the last epistle that Paul wrote. Tonight, we get to look at his conversion. We get to look at the man before he knew Christ as his Savior, his encounter with Christ, and how Christ began to transform his life. This is a risen Savior pursuing a rebellious sinner. Hopefully tonight, also, this touches a chord with our own testimony, with our own God's story in our life. In the book of Acts, this testimony of Saul, God's story in Saul's life, is recorded three times. I don't think that that's happen chance because it's showing us God's power in Saul's life, but also reminding us that your testimony is powerful. How you came to know Christ as your Savior is powerful. And to be able to share it in as many ways, in many opportunities that you have, Paul would share his testimony. He wasn't ashamed of it whenever he had the opportunity to do so. Who's going to argue with your testimony? Who's going to argue with who you were before you knew Christ as your Savior? So hopefully this is also a tool for us to sharpen our own God's story in our lives. And why do I call it God's story? Because it's more of his working in my life than anything I've done or anything that you've done as well. So let's look at verse 1 of chapter 9. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Saul still breathing threats and murder. That word still stands out to me. This isn't something new for Saul. He's continuing in his absolute hatred for the church, for the way. Those that proclaim that Jesus Christ is God, the Messiah. The Greek language here of him breathing threats is almost like a wild animal that's out of control. He's very passionate about this. He's consumed with wanting to destroy the church of God. He believes that the church is coming against the name of the one true living God. To the point where now he goes to the high priest. He's got to travel to Jerusalem and ask the high priest for permission to go to Damascus, which is in Syria. Syria is in the news right now. They're in civil war. Damascus is 150 miles from Jerusalem. So he wants to travel from Jerusalem, go 150 miles to do what? We'll we'll see in verse 2. And ask letters for him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he may bring them bound to Jerusalem. That's some passion. 
That's some hatred for the church. Doesn't matter if it's men or women. We could maybe understand women, or excuse me, men a little bit more than women, but women, they're moms, you know? So here's Saul, and he's stripping away moms from their kids. The kids are screaming, where, where are you going, mom? And he's wanting to arrest these moms and bring them to Jerusalem to face trial. If you remember earlier on, we saw Saul, and what, did he, what was he doing? He was holding the coats of those that were stoning Stephen. He heard the words of Stephen of forgiveness. He saw Stephen's face as it had the God glow. Remember how Stephen's face was a glow and Stephen was the first martyr of the church. This is a unique section in the book of Acts because it's really the beginning of persecution. When Stephen was martyred and last week as Pastor Kent covered chapter eight, we saw that the church dispersed through the persecution. Now we're going to find that God saves the ringleader of the persecution. I want to bring that out because I think it's application to our lives as well, as you may have some trials that are relocating you. A loss of a job, and some of you are having to move to a different city. Some of you are new to Colorado Springs because you got a job here and you left a place that was home. God is in that. He's working in the midst of that. Maybe someone's wronged you. They've just flat out come against you and it's pushed you to a different neighborhood. It's changed the landscape of your life and you're, you're wondering, Lord, where are you? Maybe you had a spouse that promised to be loyal to you but instead went into adultery and it was the end of a relationship. Now you find yourself in a place that you would never have been before. God takes evil and he uses it for good, amen? And we read tonight, or we sang tonight, that God's working all things together for my good. And what is meant by that is it's not always from my perspective, but it's from God's perspective. God is looking at the situation of the early church. He says, I'm going to work good in this situation. But however, our perspective and God's perspective are entirely two different things, aren't they? Elijah the prophet was extremely discouraged to the point where he didn't want to live. Then God spoke to him in 1 Kings 19. And we find that Elijah's perspective was very different than God's perspective. So be encouraged. If you're facing a Saul-like situation, God is on the move and God is working even in the midst of people being relocated. We go on into verse 3. It says, and he journeyed as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Church, his life is going to change in a moment here. Not that he's going to be perfect, but things are going to be radically different. This is a normal Tuesday for him. I don't know if it's Tuesday. I'm just being hypothetical. But it's a normal day for Saul. He's been on this course and this journey of persecuting Christians for some time. He probably woke up and had his Turkish coffee being from Tarsus, and we'll talk about that that was from, from Turkey, and he drank his coffee, his espresso, had a falafel, he's feeling good, go get some Christians, and he's making his way up to Damascus, and all of a sudden, God just turns on the light. And when God turns on the light, look out. When God wants to expose darkness, when he wants to call someone unto himself, he's gonna do it. I believe this is a response to the prayers of the early church. How long had they been praying for Saul? God, would you soften his heart? I personally don't think they were praying prayers like, God, would you kill Saul? Would you break his teeth? Would you crush his skull? I don't think they were praying that. 
Why? Because Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount, pray for your enemies. Pray for those that despitefully use you. I think they were praying for Saul's salvation. And God's answering that prayer, and God turns the lights on for Saul. In verse 4, And when he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The light was so bright that he couldn't help but fall to the ground. This prideful man is now humbled by the presence of Christ. A risen savior, he confronts. He confronts. And Jesus calls Saul by name. And he calls his name twice, Saul, Saul. And when God calls somebody by their name, many times he calls their name twice. And you think through that, when someone says your name twice, there's a rising in intensity, right? If you want to get one of your kids' attention, you may say their name twice. My mom's voice still echoes in my head, right? And God is getting his attention. I'm not a very good driver, and I'm even a worse driver when Amber's with me in the car because I'm trying to carry on a conversation and drive at the same time, which is difficult for men to do, at least this man to do. So every once in a while, I get the honey, honey, you know, I get the double honey, and that means I'm about ready to run somebody over, and it's absolutely true. And my wife is justified in getting my attention and giving me the double honey. You know, you, you need to pay attention to this and, and what, what is going on. And Saul gets that from Jesus. Maybe you've been there before, where you've been on your path, maybe a pathway of pride, maybe a pathway of perversity, and all of a sudden, there's the voice of God. And he's saying, Saul, Saul. I don't think it's an angry voice. I think it's a voice of love, but it's a stern voice as well to get Saul's attention. And then what does he say? Why are you persecuting me? When Saul was coming against the church, he was coming against Christ. We're the bride of Christ. We're the body of Christ. And Christ takes it personal and says, you thought you were taking this out on a bunch of believers? but you're actually taking it out on me. That should encourage us of how much we mean to Jesus Christ, but it also should challenge us if we start teeing off on another believer, if we start duking it out and having a fist fight and going out, someone and attacking another believer, we're actually attacking Christ because they're part of the body of Christ. Why are you persecuting me? Jesus loves us enough to confront a risen Savior that comes and calls us by name. In verse 5, and he said, this is classic, who are you, Lord? <laughs> so he asks the question, but he answers his own question. He knows. All God had to do was call his name. All Jesus had to do is call his name. Sometimes people come to know Christ in a setting like this where the gospel is shared. Sometimes people come to know Christ while they're driving in the car. And the Holy Spirit speaks to them. Sometimes people can't sleep and it's the middle of the night and Jesus begins to call them by name. It doesn't matter the location. The important thing is that they're responding to the voice of Jesus Christ. This is the key question for salvation. Who are you? Who is Jesus? Is Jesus God? Is he Lord? 
And we know that surrendering to Jesus Christ as our Lord is a part of salvation. Romans 10, 9 tells us that, that when we believe that God raised him from the dead, we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that God raised him from the dead and Jesus is Lord, where we put him on the throne of our lives. Not that we're gonna be perfect. Paul wasn't perfect after this, but we understand I've made a mess of me. I've made a mess of my life. And I'm ready to surrender my life to Jesus Christ. I'm ready for him to be the Lord of my life. Continuing in verse 5, Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Remember who he's talking to. Saul, in Philippians 3, tells us that he was a Pharisee of Pharisee. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He knew the Old Testament scriptures where God revealed himself as the great I am, right? Right? And so here, when Jesus says this phrase, I am, it's a clear statement of deity. I am Jesus. I am the one who saves. And it would stick with him that God was talking to him, the great I am. It's hard for you to kick against the goats. Can I hear an amen on that one? So what's a goads? You might be sitting here tonight and you're like, I have no idea what it means to kick against the goats. This is in a culture of cattle and and animals and shepherds and the shepherds with the sheep would have a stick and at the end of the stick would be a goad. And when these sheep would start to stray and get out of line as a shepherd, you would hit the sheep. And this is what we find with Paul is God was goading him throughout his life. As Saul was persecuting Christians and standing there consenting to the death of Stephen, God was there going, come on, Saul, you need to respond. Come on, Saul, you need to respond. And then finally, God's like, boom, get off your horse, you know? It's time for you to look up. It's time for you to see the reality of what you're doing. And can you relate? Can you look back over the course of your life and see the hound dog of heaven, see the Holy Spirit and pursuing us out of his love, saying, Eric, what are you doing? What are you doing? What's up with that attitude? What's up with that action? Why, why are you kicking against the goads? And it reminded me tonight, I don't want to be in this place. And even as believers, we can begin to drift and resist the voice of God, resist the, the word of God. The, the way of a transgressor is hard. The way of a sinner is hard. The way of rebellion is hard. And God in his grace, he'll, he'll pursue us and we want to respond to that. Why are you kicking against the goads? There's one person we don't want to be in opposition to and it's God. And God tells us what he opposes, it's pride. Our independence and us thinking we can do it on our own. But he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the broken. In verse six, so he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Take note of that. He's trembling and he's astonished. And coming in contact with a risen Savior, it causes us to tremble. There's a fear of God. There's an aspect to the fear of the Lord that's there. But then there's also wonder of, wow, Jesus, you love me. You would take time for me. I grew up in a Christian home. I was born on a Sunday. The next Sunday, I was in church as an infant. My parents were the first ones in both sides of their family to know Christ as their savior. So Jesus was everything in our home. Whenever the church was open, we were there. I grew up until I was 12 in a style of church where there was Sunday school, and then there was the main service that you went to as a child. So that event was like a three or plus hour process. And then you came back for Sunday night church, and then you came to Wednesday church, 
And all this was happening, and the ceiling of the church was made out of wood, and there was knots on the ceiling. And I'd just sit there as a kid, and I'd just count all the knots. You know, and we had a pastor that liked to scream and yell, and I'd be like, wow, his face is getting really red. I don't, I don't really understand what he's saying. I'll just count some more knots. And my heart got really hard to the, to the things of, of Christ. And then when I was a freshman in high school, I just cried out to God one day walking home from, from the gym, from basketball. And I cried out to God out of emptiness, says, God, if you're real, I need you to speak to me. And I heard the still, small voice of God. Just God speaking truth into my heart. Eric, while you didn't want anything to do with me, I wanted everything to do with you. And it broke me, and I was astonished. And I remember walking into my parents' house, and I was bawling. I said, God loves me. He loves me. He loves me. And I'd heard that my whole entire life. You know, there's probably very few days in my life that I wasn't reminded of that truth, but I encountered Jesus. See, and that's the thing, is it's not just going to Bible studies, it's not just going to church, that's good, but we want to encounter Jesus, amen? So how do we do that? We cry out to him. Jesus says, if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. Even right now, whatever's going on in your life, you cry out to Jesus. And as we meet with Jesus and understand who he is and his love for us, we just come away astonished, but we also are in a place of trembling. He asks us an important question here. He says, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the two go hand in hand. If Jesus is Lord, then that means he's in charge of our lives. We say, okay, now God, you call the shots. What do you want me to do? Notice with this question, there's no conditions here. Paul doesn't go, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do? A would be good, B would be good, C's okay, but I'm definitely not doing D. And how many times do I do that with the Lord? It's like, God, I'm really open to your will in my life as long as it fits into these three boxes. But if it's anything else, I don't want to do it. And we get to this place where we really fear surrender, but it's the best place for our lives to be surrendered in the hands of our Savior. Paul got to this place of brokenness and surrender and humility. He asked this question, and from every indication of Saul's life, who became Paul, he never stopped asking the question. And this is the most important question to live in as far as the Christian life goes. Make it simple. It's really simple. Christ loves us. He died for us. He rose again. He's got a great plan for our lives. So we can wake up every day and say, Lord, what do you want me to do? I want to surrender completely. No conditions. What do you have for me? I want to do it. I trust you. And then life becomes extremely exciting and challenging, but nothing can compare to walking inside of the will of God. A simple question for us tonight, are you tired of being in control? Are you tired of what happens to your life when you're calling the shots? It brings us to that place of brokenness. Continuing in verse six, then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Come on, give me a little more than that. You just want me to go to Damascus and wait? Haven't you found God's instructions to be that way? God calls, God confronts, and God instructs. When we surrender, God's ready. He's got an opinion on our lives and how we should live our lives. He's got an instruction. But a lot of times, it comes one step at a time. If Paul doesn't do A, he doesn't receive instruction B. We want God to lay it all out. What's the next five years? What's the next 10 years? Okay, while I'm at it, everything until I go home to be with the Lord. And God's like, I want you to go home and read your Bible tonight. 
why don't you go home and get to bed early? You're really tired. You need some extra rest. Come on. Give me a little bit more than that. Nope, just do A. I just want you to do this. This is what, what I have for you today. Why does God orchestrate it this way? A couple reasons in my mind. Because if he told us the whole thing, if he gave us the whole enchilada, we would argue with him. We go, I don't know about this. I don't, no, I'm not signing up for that. I'm not going there, right? If Stephen Gale's sitting over here, we're, know that they were, know, if they knew that they were moving to Uganda five years ago, they're moving this summer, they probably would have said, no, Lord, I ain't moving to Uganda. I'm not going there, right? But God's given him one instruction at a time. Do A, and then the Lord will show us B. Also, the reason for the moment-to-moment instruction is it keeps us close to the Lord. It keeps us walking with him. God, what do you have for me today? If we knew everything for the next 20 years, the next 10 years, we probably wouldn't check in with him like we should. In verse 7, And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. So it's just Paul that gets the vision of Christ. The other men hear the voice, but they don't see Christ. This is special for Saul. Verse 8, Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, saw no one, but they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. Consider this with me. This is a really deep moment. First, as Saul now stands up, and he's in complete darkness, what's the last image that would be in his mind? The vision of Christ. And that's awesome. That's beautiful and that's powerful. And it's almost like God says, you're gonna be blind for a few days because I don't want you to forget me. I don't want you to forget the vision of Christ. And I could see just Paul walking to Damascus and he's got the vision of Christ in his mind as he is blind. Also, we know that Paul was blind physically so that he could see spiritually. That's the work that God's doing. He's giving him his spiritual eyesight. And also he's going from pride to humility. It seems like Saul was a very proud man. He had it all together. He even knew what God was doing and what God wasn't doing. And all of a sudden, he's like a little child that has to be led by the hand. He's like an elderly person on their deathbed that needs to be cared for. This takes a lot of pride out of him. He goes from pride to humility. In verse nine, and he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. God's gonna give him his sight back, but not for three days. He doesn't eat nor does he drink for these three days. This shows the intensity of what's happening in Paul's life spiritually. Sometimes when people have an encounter with Christ and they come to know Christ as their Savior, you hear things like, I just stood up all night reading my Bible. and I did that for a long season. I got so into telling other people about Jesus, I, I just missed lunch all, all together. And, and you just see this radical things happening in their hearts and their lives. And Paul wasn't interested in eating and drinking. He was just interested in seeking the Lord. Our risen Savior, he calls, he confronts, he instructs, he saves, and he sins. Now we get God's insight to another messenger in verse 10. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And said, and to him, the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am. The way that this is recorded is it seems that Ananias is not a leader amongst the church. He's not a Peter. 
He's not John. He's not James. He's a certain disciple, but he is a committed follower of Jesus Christ. This shows us that we're equal in Christ. You don't have to be of some rank and file to be used by the Lord. Also interesting that his name's Ananias, because we saw an Ananias earlier in the book of Acts, and he got slain by the Spirit quite literally, and he died for lying to the Holy Spirit. Remember that? So God's redeeming a name here. Don't you like that? The last Ananias that we find in Acts is one who serves the Lord. And God appears to him in this vision, in, in this dream, and calls him by name. He says, Ananias. And he says, here I am, Lord. Isn't that a great response to the voice of God? A great response to the word of God? What if we read our Bibles that way? We know this is from God. It's God speaking to us. And we just said, here I am, Lord. Speak to me. Let me know what I need to hear. So Ananias is a man who's living under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So verse 11, so the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight. This street still exists in Damascus, and it's a tragedy in this civil war. The ancient city of Damascus is getting destroyed. Damascus is known to be the oldest city in the world. You can still go to this street called Straight. Not a safe place to go this evening, but you could still go there. Inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he's praying. Verse 12, and in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. This is the ultimate, he already knows you're coming. <laughs> Ananias, you have to go. I already told Paul in a vision that a guy named Ananias is, is going to come. And you've got to picture Ananias at this point. His jaw's just got to be dropping. We're going to see his response to the Lord in the next few verses. Oh, really? Saul? He's here to arrest Christians, to persecute Christians. He comes with a reputation. This just has to be the ice cream that I ate before I went to bed. The timing of this is interesting because last night I'm just sound asleep and I'm laying there on my back in my bed and I felt this hand on my shoulder, just touch my shoulder. And I heard this voice, the room you're in is gonna fall off the house, get out. And so I get up, I go to my closet and I get dressed and I start walking down the stairs, and it hits me. I'm sleepwalking. I had like this vivid dream of sleeping in this shack, and I was in this shack that was falling apart, and I really felt this touch on my shoulder and this voice like, you gotta, you gotta get out. The room's gonna fall off the, the house. And it wasn't until I was fully dressed and I'm walking down the stairs that I realized I'm an idiot. <laughs> I'm an absolutely sleepwalking in this moment. But instead of just turning around and getting right back into bed, I thought, I've got to test this out, so I'm going to make it to the kitchen, and that's when I'll be able to affirm that I'm having a dream and I'm sleepwalking. But I've done that throughout my life of being a, a sleepwalker. One time we were camping on the sand dunes in Oregon, and my parents were in a tent, and my brother and I were in a tent with a couple other, other guys, and I literally woke up on the sand dunes as like an elementary age kid. I just had this dream, and I'm sleepwalking, and I wake up, and I'm on the sand dunes. I'm like, I have no idea where the tent is. And thankfully, I turned around and walked back and went right back to, to the tent. So if I had a vision, I'd be like, I don't know what's going on. You know, I, I'm just sleepwalking again. And I'm sure Ananias is wrestling with, 
You know, if he goes to his wife and tells his wife, hey, this is what I'm going to do today. Uh, God wants me to go pray for Saul. Ah, not a good idea. You're not going to, this isn't the kind of thing you go tell anybody about. You just go, go do it. You know, you go be obedient to the Lord. And then afterwards, you tell him what, what God has done. Notice Ananias' reservation in verse 13. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man how much harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Are you sure, Lord? Are you sure you want me to to do this? He has a reputation. He has authority. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Don't you love that? He's a chosen vessel of mine mine. Who's the Saul in your life that seems like, ah, they're almost beyond the reach of God. I can't imagine them doing a 180 and following the Lord. God says, oh, they're my my chosen vessel. Maybe you look at your life and you go, man, these are all the things that I have done wrong. How could God use me? And God says, you're my chosen vessel. The blood of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus has the power to forgive Saul of his sins, to transform him and allow him to be a vessel that God uses. I like the word vessel because there's nothing necessarily in and of the vessel. It's what the vessel contains. And we know that in this pot, in this pot is the treasure of Jesus. And hopefully Jesus can just pour through our lives. What's his mission? To bear the name of Christ before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Notice the order. It's the Gentiles first. And that's going to be difficult for Paul in his life. He wants to go to the children of Israel first. But God has to reorient him and give him a, a heart for the Gentiles. As we'll continue in the book of Acts, we'll see this fulfilled in Paul's life where he'll minister to Gentiles. He's really the apostle of the Gentiles. God will bring him before kings and he'll also share with the children of Israel. In verse 16, don't miss it. It says, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my Name's sake. So part of what Paul was going through in these three days as a brand new believer is God was beginning to stir on Paul's life. This is the calling that I have for you. This is what I want you to do. And Paul, it's going to be hard. Paul, you're going to suffer. Paul, you're going to be persecuted. Maybe even God showing Paul you're going to be martyred ultimately for the things of the Lord. I think at times God does prepare us for hard seasons to come. Or he just puts on our hearts. You know, these are going to be some of the difficulties. These are going to be some of the challenges. And his love, he prepares us. Sometimes he doesn't prepare us. But this is what we've got to know. Two things. That in this life, there will be tribulation. But be of good cheer. God's overcome the world. And also, many times, the call of God in our lives comes with suffering. They go hand in hand. We look at Paul's life and we go, wow, it'd be awesome to be used like that for the Lord. And it would be, but understand it was difficult and it came with a great degree of suffering. Why? Because in the suffering, Paul knew Christ's suffering. He even prayed to know the fellowship of Christ's suffering. So when he spoke about what Christ went through, he could tangibly understand it. There was authority about what he was speaking. One older pastor was listening to a younger pastor preach and he got home and his wife, the wife of the older pastor said, what did, you, what did you think of that young pastor? He did such a great job and he was so articulate and charismatic. 
And then the husband responded, it was good, but give him 20 more years after he suffered and it'll be a lot more powerful. And there's just truth about it. There's truth about it in our preaching. There's truth about it in our testimony with our neighbors and amidst our families. There's a weight that comes about us as we suffer. And that's what happened in Paul's life as well. As odd as it is, be encouraged and embrace the suffering if you're in a season of suffering. Sometimes in my life, I've been so consumed with, I just want to get out of this season of suffering. I don't want to be in this place that I don't take the time to learn the lesson that God intended. And suffering doesn't just naturally mean that we'll learn what God has for us. Sometimes we just have to sit down in the hot sand, quit trying to run away from the situation, say, I can't get out of this, and God, would you help me to learn more about you through this? Would you help me to see something about you that I wouldn't see in any other way? And would you help me to have greater compassion for people? Because I've found in my life, when I do go through hard times, all of a sudden I'm a lot more aware of other people around me who are suffering. It's not fun, but it is worthwhile. Verse 17, and Ananias went his way and entered the house. He did it. Ananias did it. He followed the Lord. He obeyed God. And aren't you thankful that he did? And what a story he had to tell. And here he comes. Can you picture Ananias? Oh, nobody's home. <laughs> I did it, you know? There's just that moment of anticipation of what's going to happen. And so he's knocking on the door, and they open the door. And laying his hand on him, he said, Brother Saul. Not persecutor Saul. Not this is what you've done to other Christians. But he puts his hands on him. He says, Brother Saul. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. What refreshment would come upon Saul as he heard those words. Notice he's gonna receive his sight but also be filled with the Spirit. The book of Acts is the story of the power of the Spirit moving through ordinary people that are submitted to God. Once again, we find that salvation and the empowering of the Holy Spirit are two different experiences. The moment that Saul received Christ, he was the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came in him. But now as Ananias prays for him, he's gonna be filled with the Spirit for the power of God in his life. Verse 18, immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he had received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So this is far out. Picture his eyes. And there was something like scales that had come over his eyes as he was blind. And all of a sudden, these scales just fall away, and he receives his sight. What he's gone through physically represents what's happened in his life spiritually. His physical sight is restored but his spiritual sight had been given to him. He's seen spiritually for the first time. He decides to get baptized. Baptism is that public declaration of faith. It's what's already taken place inward. We're gonna have a baptism coming up on June 1st on our church picnic. If you know Christ is your savior and you've never been baptized, what a wonderful opportunity to proclaim publicly what Christ has done in your life inwardly. In verse 19, now I see some of you guys getting nervous and you're looking in your Bibles and you're going, there is 43 verses. How late am I going to be here tonight? I'm not going through the whole chapter. Breathe easy. So Lord willing, we'll get you out of here on time. Verse 19. So when he'd received food, it was the best ever. 
and he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Could you imagine how good the food tasted and the coffee and the water tasted after three days of not eating or drinking? Verse 20, immediately, right away, he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. He knew the Old Testament scriptures. Now they're coming alive to him. And he goes to the synagogue and he starts opening up the Old Testament scriptures and saying, look, this is where Christ was prophesied in the Old Testament. Don't think that you've got to have it all figured out before you can go tell other people about Jesus. Go share what Christ has done in your life. You may be brand new in Christ and go and share the wonderful things of Jesus. In verse 21, then all who heard were amazed. Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he may bring them bound to the chief priests? They're just like, really? This guy? Here's a prayer request for our community. Is let's pray for the Saul's of our community. Let's pray for those that the unbelieving world, the lost in Colorado Springs, go, I would never imagine this guy being in church. I would never imagine this lady coming in after the weekend and talking about the things of Christ. Because that gets people's attention. When Saul's preaching, they're like, Saul, really? This persecutor? Sometimes here at church, we've had people come in and they go, really? This person's here? They've come to know Christ as their savior? That's one of your pastors? I knew them before they knew Christ as their Savior. And we're like, yep, that's the grace of God. God loves to save sinners. We can begin to pray for that in countries that we're doing missions work as well, that God would save and raise up the Saul's of those communities. Verse 22, but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. So God's strength in Saul's life. Now please write down Galatians 1 verse 17. I'd like to read it to you. You don't have to turn there. But this is an important time in Paul's life. Is he leaves Damascus and he'll come back to Damascus. But Galatians 1 verse 17 tells us that he spent three years in the desert in the Jerusalem. It says this, it says, nor do I go up to Jerusalem to those who are apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So most likely right here in verse 22, Saul goes out and spends three years alone with the Lord, comes back to Damascus, there's more persecution, then he goes down to Jerusalem. Why is this so important? Because great men and women of God are met and spending time alone with the Lord. God makes a person as we spend time alone with God. Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness with God before he received his call from the Lord. Joseph had many years of isolation where he was alone with God. David was alone in the wilderness with God before God raised him up to be king. Jesus spent time in the wilderness. This great man that God made, he made Paul as he was spending three years alone with God. There will be times, just like there's times of suffering, where God takes us into times of isolation, 
where it just seems like friendships aren't working out and we're left alone with the Lord and we're going, God, this is extremely hard. I'm in a, in a wilderness and the Lord's making a man. He's making a woman that could be used by God. And a lot of times we look at Paul's life and we just go, it was instant. Everything was instant, like instant coffee or McDonald's or the drive through at Starbucks. And here's my life. I came to know Christ as my Savior. And it seems like God's just set me over here where I'm alone with God. No, it's God's plan. And that's where we dive into to his presence. And I often look at Paul's life and David's life and Moses' life, and they probably looked back and went, oh, that time alone with God was so good. <laughs> Why was I in a hurry to get out of that season? David's life got really hard once he wasn't a shepherd anymore. You know, Moses' life got really difficult as he was no longer in the wilderness. Enjoy that season if the Lord has it for you. In verse 23, now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. So now he's gone back to Damascus. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. In Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, he lists this as one of the difficulties in his life. This was a letdown for him. The personal rejection that he felt as he went and served in Damascus. I think he had high hopes of what God would do, but yet the persecution came, and in order for his life to be saved, then he had to be let down in this large basket outside of the wall. He couldn't go through the gate because it meant his certain destruction. We're just going to go through verse 30 tonight, so we just have a few more verses. Now he comes to Jerusalem. So sometime before he came to Jerusalem, Galatians chapter 1 tells us that he'd spent the three years in the desert. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, and he didn't, didn't believe that he was a disciple. Isn't this mind-blowing? Someone tries to hang out with God's people, and they're like, nope. You, you, can't, you can't come to church. Sorry, you can't get into a small group. You're not coming to men's Bible study. In fact, we don't want you here because we're afraid that you really haven't changed and you're going to persecute the church. If we lived in an atmosphere of this level of persecution, I think possibly we could understand it. But how difficult this would be for Paul, this is not the reception that he thought he would receive. There's an encourager in Ananias and another encourager in Barnabas. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. Barnabas, his name literally means son of encouragement. Can't you see him doing that? He comes alongside of Paul and says, let me introduce you to the apostles, which would be Peter and James and John and the like. And he declared to them how he'd seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he'd preach boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So Paul begins to share his testimony and how God met him on that road to Damascus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, which are Jews who are influenced by the Greek culture. But they attempted to kill him. <laughs> Man, Paul's just off to a good start. Everywhere he goes... People want to kill him. People want to kill him. And this is God leading Paul to who? To the Gentiles. Up until this point, there's really been no fruit, no effectiveness. Not that Paul was wrong, but each door that he knocks on, it gets the response of, here's the death threat. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. And God's moving in his life. When the brethren found out 
They brought him down to Caesarea, which is a seaport city on the Sea of Galilee, there in Israel, and sent him out to Tarsus, which is in modern-day Turkey. If you look at a map and you, you follow it up the coastline, you will come to Tarsus. And that's where we leave, and we'll pick up next week. Here's a few questions tonight. And the first is, is what's God's story in your life? And before we just rush on with our evening, please consider it. What is God's story in your life? In about five minutes or less, we should be able to articulate to anyone at any time that God gives us the opportunity to how God got a hold of our life. So here's a few things to consider, and it's worth writing it down, putting it on a three-by-five card, memorizing, start sharing it with other believers. It encourages other believers as well. But think about what your life was like briefly before you knew Christ as your Savior. You don't want to spend four minutes talking about your life before Christ and not spend any time talking about how Jesus got a hold of you. So what was your life briefly like before you received Christ your Savior? That relates to somebody who doesn't know, know Christ. And then think of what were the events in your life that brought you to Christ? What was it? Was it great success and you felt completely empty? Was it complete despair from foolish and sinful choices? But write those things down and then explain how Christ got your attention. You gave your heart to Christ and put it down in some simple three to four bullet points. I tend to think in bullet points. You know how you think, but have it down and begin to share it because it's a powerful tool to be able to share with others. How can someone argue what Christ has done in their life? How can they argue with this is what I was like before Christ and this is what I'm like now that Christ is in my life? And I think it's also important to be transparent and say, hey, these are still some struggles that I have today. It's not that I've got this all figured out or somehow this wand got and I became perfect. This is the grace that God showed me in my life in the past and he's continuing to show me. And then be faithful to encourage others. Be an Ananias. Be a Barnabas. Not everybody's a Saul. A certain disciple, Ananias, obeyed the Lord and the great encouragement that came to Paul. Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Be faithful to encourage others. When God says, I want you to go encourage this person, be faithful to do it. And then finally tonight as we close, is Jesus calling you? Is he calling you? Just like Saul, as you came in tonight, you know that Jesus has been working upon your heart and maybe you've been fighting it. And would tonight be the night that you say, Jesus, your Lord, that's salvation. I believe you're God, that you died for my sins and rose again, and you're Lord. You don't need to come down and pray with anybody on the ministry team. If you want to, we'd sure be blessed to pray with you to receive Christ your Savior. But right where you're at, you can humble your heart and cry out to the Lord and say, Jesus, save me. If you are wrestling with the Lord in this moment and you go out to start your car tonight and it doesn't start, that's the Holy Spirit saying, hey, you need to get right with me before you go home tonight. I just sense that the Lord's wrestling with some. He's drawing you and respond, Jesus, your Lord, encounter him, allow him to give you forgiveness and salvation. Let's stand together and let's pray.